0: Good morning. morning. It is so good to be here with you this morning. Let's spend a little time in prayer together before we dive into the scriptures. God, we are so grateful that you've called each one of us here today. And we're so grateful that you are not some faraway God, but that you are right here among us and within us, not just when we're together, but Especially when we're together. You've said where two or three are gathered, you are there among us. So God, we just want to acknowledge your presence here today. We want to thank you. We want to praise you. And we want to remember who you are and whose we are. God, you've brought us through so much and we trust you that as we look to the week ahead, you will bring us through whatever this week holds. God, we want to pray for the needs in this room today, and we want to pray for the needs of our wider world today. We know this is not all just about us, but you've told us when we pray, it really does make a difference So God, we pray for our world today. We pray for peace. It breaks our hearts to see wars raging around the world. People starving to death in the Sudan this week. It breaks our hearts to see such pain and violence in this world. And yet, we know it breaks your heart even more. So God, we ask that you would Be on the move to bring healing and peace to this world. And use us, God. You know that there are opportunities in each of our lives to give of our resources, to feed the hungry, to reach across a divide in our country or even in our homes, to bring peace and reconciliation. So Holy Spirit, would you fill each of us again? Fill us to overflowing. Empower us to be the people that you created us to be. Let us be salt and light in this world. And let there be no doubt among our neighbors that you are real, because they can see it in our lives. Forgive us, Lord. Make us new. Give us a fresh start today. And we thank you. Thank you for all that we can entrust to you. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, before we uh, dive into to today's scripture. Um, This is our last week of hot topics for cold weather, and, uh, you know, we took one week off last week, and the weather got warm because we didn't say cold weather, but now we're back, and the cold weather's back, so (laughs) who knew we had so much power over meteorology, right? But uh, this is our last week because this Coming week, we begin a new season in the Christian year. This is the season of Lent that's starting on Wednesday. Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter, and it's a time when Christians have always kind of set aside a little special time and attention to prepare our hearts for what happens at Easter time, that momentous death and resurrection, and we want to be ready to receive that good news Lent starts with Ash Wednesday, that's this Wednesday, and we are going to um, celebrate that together Wednesday night in the sanctuary down at the other end of the building uh, with a worship service. This is a, a, a great little worship service. I hope that you can come. It's a quiet time of music and prayer and communion. Those who want to will be able to receive ashes on their forehead. It's a powerful biblical symbol of repentance and and God doing a new thing in our hearts so if you've never come to that service I hope that you will um, try that out this year I I think you will will not regret it and then next Sunday we're starting a new series um, that's looking at that last week in Jesus life we're gonna stretch that last week of Jesus life out throughout the whole seven weeks of the Lenten season right up to Easter and each week here we will walk through another day of Jesus life in that last week following the gospel of Mark so much happened in that last week there was uh, excitement and and betrayal and faith and some of Jesus most important teaching and then of course uh, his suffering and death, and then finally we get to meet him at the empty tomb, at the resurrection. So my hope is that as you walk through, Je- through this last week with Jesus, and as you experience with him the, the, the flattery and the opposition, the, the faith and the betrayal, all of that that goes into that last week, that, that his life will come alive in you, his wisdom, his strength, will grow deeper in you and that as we emerge on the other end of this Lenten season we'll know him better and love him more and be more like him so if that starts next week looking forward to that so uh, as I said today is our last day of hot topics for cold weather and um, you saw on the intro video that uh, it's all posted on our website. I know there's been a lot of material to get through this, this um, series, and so you may want to go back or refer a friend. You can find all that on our website. Um, so let's look at our scripture for today. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to hop around in Genesis just a little bit. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. And then over to Genesis 2, verse 7. And finally, Genesis (laughs) Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Listen to God's word for us today. Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds in the sky, and over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created, in his, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And over to two seven. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then over to the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28. Galatians 3, starting with verse 26. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, and you have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the good news of Jesus Christ for us today thank you Lord thank you God that you speak to us even today I pray that you would open our ears open our hearts may we hear your voice in Jesus name amen So today's topic uh, is what does the Bible say about women? Really, it's broader than that because you can't really talk about women without talking about men in the Bible. So um, I played around with a whole bunch of different titles. Men, women, church, family, Bible. finally just came down to what does the Bible say about women? But really, it involves all of us. Let me start by saying that Good-hearted Christians disagree about this topic. Really about all these topics that we've been talking about. That's why they're hot topics, aren't they? Good-hearted Christians disagree. It's easy to say about people who disagree about how to interpret the scriptures In these areas that they've just the ones who disagree with us have just given into sort of worldly thinking or that they don't care about the scripture I think that's too simplistic I think it's important at the beginning of this discussion to remember that there are a lot of people who love God and who respect the Bible who come to different conclusions here, and we probably have a wide variety of opinions in this room. We, we what I want to say is, we don't excommunicate each other. Okay. We can still be brothers and sisters in Christ and respect each other and love each other and continue to learn together and grow together and let God lead us and teach us. So um, obviously you know where, where Pastor Bill and I stand sort of on this area, uh, on these topics. I thought about trying to sort of lay out all the different opinions In a neutral kind of way but obviously you know since I'm up here in front of you teaching and preaching that uh, that kind of gives away my opinion on on uh, how to interpret these scriptures so obviously you know where Pastor Bill and I stand and where our church as a as a a larger church the United Methodist Church stands but you may not know why and so I think this is a, a great opportunity for me to share my heart and my learning and my understanding of what the Bible says about this. There's really too much here for one day. We would be here all morning and longer if I really tried to cover everything. So once again, I, I uh, draw your attention to our website. We've posted some more resources there on this topic. Good, solid, biblical, evangelical, orthodox scholarship. Some of it's more scholarly. Some of it's more easy to uh, digest. Um, There's a couple videos there. So if you want to dig into this deeper, there's some good resources there for you to start with. And uh, just know that we're not going to cover it all this morning. You're probably saying, oh, thank goodness. We're not going to cover it all this morning. This topic often involves um, looking at a few specific passages that seem to limit the role of women. When you ask, "What does the Bible say about women?" often those are the first places that we go. Those "quote-unquote" hard passages, as they're often called, ones like First 1 Timothy, chapter two, verses eleven and twelve, that say a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. What do we do with that? Or there's Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Often those are the first places we go to answer the question, what does the Bible say about women? Those verses are really important, and they need to have careful study. But I would propose that that is not the place to start in answering this question. That the only way to understand what those verses mean is to look at the broader teaching of Scripture. To understand uh, what the Bible teaches in the, the, the broader message of Scripture and then to see how those passages fit into the whole truth of Scripture. When it comes to this issue, the issue of what does it mean to be a woman in, in Scripture, in God's view of things, many Christians tend to read the rest of Scripture, the, the, the broader Bible, through the lens of the hard passages, rather than the other way around so i'm proposing and a lot of scholars propose that we read scripture the other way around first we see the the main message of scripture the broader truths of scripture and then we focus on those hard passages and say in light of what we know the bible says is true how do we interpret these passages. So we're going to focus today mostly on larger biblical truths. What does the Bible say about women? Because you can't answer the second question until you answer that first one. What does the Bible teach about women and really about women and men? This is sort of like a three-act drama so that's kind of how we're gonna look at it today a drama in three acts the first act is creation the second act is redemption and the third act is Christian community so the first one is creation all of scripture tells us who God is and who we human beings are and the relationship between God and human beings. Those are the the three fundamental questions that, that Scripture answers. And Genesis especially answers those questions who God is, and who we are, and what's the relationship between humans and God. So, Genesis, right there in chapter one, tells us that creation was intentional, God did this all on purpose and that it was good and we see this order of creation and then there's a change when God makes human beings that we're not like the the trees and the plants and the animals that God does things differently when he makes people he stops and he says what he's gonna do and then he creates human beings and says it's very good Genesis 1:26 says let us make mankind in our image in our likeness and goes on to say God created mankind in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them the bible takes pains to point out that God created both male and female in his image God is a, a plurality, right? Three persons in one, God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that, that plurality of God's person is reflected in the fact that God didn't just make one kind of human being. He made a plurality. He made he, male and female. And Genesis 1 points out that femaleness reflects the image of God just as much as maleness. You all remember Scooby-Doo, right? But do you remember Scrappy-Doo? No? Oh, Steve does, yeah. Well, Scooby-Doo, you know, he was this popular cartoon character and uh, for whatever reason, maybe his ratings were going down, we don't know why, after many seasons, the creators of Scooby-Doo decided to add another fun character, his nephew. Was it his nephew, Steve, some other little dog named Scrappy-Doo, who would care, you know, go around with Scooby-Doo and help the comic uh, relief happen? Scrappy-Doo never really made it. He was just kind of a derivative, you know, not the real thing. Sometimes you hear people talk about creation of human beings in a way that gives you the feeling that men are like the real deal, Scooby-Doo, and women are sort of like the derivative, you know, the extra that got added in later to kind of help things out, but not as good, not as important. Genesis 1 doesn't give us that description at all. It says that both male and female equally reflect God's image. And Genesis 1 also tells us about the authority that were given to both women and men at creation. God says, Let's, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. God gave them a job to do. He said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. God gave the first humans a job to do. And notice he gave it to both of them, the the male and the female. In our house, we have this great little envelope that is stuck to our refrigerator with a magnet, and I decorated it with these fun stickers and smiley faces. It's called Choose a Chore. My kids love it. Choose a chore. And on days when there's no school or they're on vacation, they each get to choose a chore from the little uh, envelope. And they each have to do it. Now, it wouldn't be any fair or it wouldn't be right if I said, only the boys have to choose a chore. Right, Will? He would say, hey, what about myself? Or vice versa. God gives Adam and Eve both this job to do because they both bear God's image. It wouldn't make sense to give just one or the other. They're both given the task Of exercising some of God's authority over creation because they both reflect God's image notice that the Bible doesn't give any hint of division of responsibilities or a distinction of rank in their ruling over creation and also notice that nowhere in creation in this creation account is man told to rule over woman they're both told together to rule over creation but you might say, okay, that's Genesis chapter 1, but what about Genesis chapter 2? Doesn't that establish man as the ruler and woman as the helper? Well, let's look at what it really says. Chapter 2 tells the creation story in a little more detail. It's like we get this story in chapter 1, and then chapter 2 circles back around and gives it to us from another perspective We see in chapter 2 that God makes Adam, and he says Adam is alone, and God says it's not good for him to be alone. So in Genesis 2, 18, God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now what does that word helper mean? A lot of people have naturally assumed that it means that the man was put in charge and the woman was given a secondary role. You know what that's like. Remember those old shake and bake commercials? And I helped the little girl, you know, she's helping. She's obviously not the one in charge, but she's helping because she can shake the bag, right? It kind of gives you that impression that the woman is the helper. It's a perfectly reasonable way to understand that word helper, in English at least. But we always need to test our interpretations. I learned in way back in college in my Bible classes, use scripture to interpret scripture. We don't want to bring our English language assumptions to the Bible and say, that's what it means. We want to let the Bible teach us what it means. So what does the Bible mean by that word helper? Well, the word helper in Hebrew is "azer." That word is used 26 times In the Old Testament, that's always a great way to figure out what the Bible means by a word. You look at all the different ways that the Bible uses that same word. Well, of those 26 times that the word Azer is used in the Old Testament, 16 times it's used as a reference for God as our helper or God as our help. I will lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 121. That's the same word. According to Rabbi David Friedman, the word Azer is a combination of two root words the first one meaning to rescue or to save, and the second one meaning strength. So Azer describes aspects of God's character. He is our strength. Our rescuer, our protector, our help. And isn't it interesting that Azer was the Holy Spirit's choice of a word to describe the first woman? Eve was someone who would provide valuable and vital strength for Adam. There's nothing in that word to indicate that a helper is subordinate, it's not setting all men up as the boss and all women up as the assistants and even Adam's reaction when he first sees this person that God has made out of material from Adam's side affirms the reality of their equality when Adam looks at his new partner he exclaims this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh he's seen all these different animals that God has created but none are a suitable partner for him. But then when he sees Eve, he says, oh, yeah, she is like me. She's made out of the same stuff I am. She is a a suitable partner or helper for me. This is a profound expression of similarity and equality. You don't see any hierarchy here. But to further emphasize the point, after he says that, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, then the next verse, 24, goes on to say that this is why when a husband and wife are joined in marriage, the two become one flesh. That's a point that Jesus also highlighted, the oneness of those two. So God's ideal at creation was that man and woman would be completely equal and rule over nature together in harmony with each other. So what went wrong? <laughs> that's not the that's not the the reality that our world lives with, is it? What went wrong? If that was God's plan, where did this hierarchy between men and women come from if it wasn't part of the created order? Well, unfortunately, the paradise in the Garden of Eden didn't last forever. You probably know the story, or if you don't, you can read it. In the following chapters of Genesis 3 and 4, that the tempter came on the scene and tempted Eve to eat that fruit that God had told them not to eat. She ate it, and she gave some to Adam, and paradise was broken. Sin came into the world. And there were consequences to that sin. Evil will cause suffering to humans. God gathers Adam and Eve together and says, there will be suffering because of your sin. You will have pain, Eve, in childbearing. Adam, you will have pain in trying to scratch out food from the earth. The relationship between You and the earth is broken between you and creation and between the two of you is broken. In this relationship between husband and wife, God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's the curse, the curse of sin that we all live with. That's the fall. Scholar Gilbert Bilzekian says, as a result of Satan's work, Man was now master over woman, just as the ground was now master over man. This sin pitted Eve and Adam in competition against each other for power. And both of these things are a result of sin, not part of God's design. But thankfully, God did not leave us there. He didn't just Let this all set in motion and then let it go. He had a plan, even then, to undo the power of sin and death. And that's act two of our drama. That is the redemption that Jesus Christ brings. We weren't left to suffer the consequences of sin forever. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what we testified to earlier this morning, that, that Jesus is a chain breaker. He sets us free from the curse of sin and death, right? That is the good news. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. That's the, that great hymn by Charles Wesley. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we all can become Children of God, one in Christ, inheritors of the blessings of salvation, whether we are male or female. I have a friend from uh, Georgia who likes to say in his great southern accent, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. You know what he means by that, right? There's no better or worse. Jesus makes us all the same in him. I grew up uh, as a Red Sox fan, and I remember my brother growing up had this T-shirt that he wore till it just fell apart, and it said, Boston Red Sox, 1918 World Champions. (laughs) Because that was the last time in all my growing up years that they had won the World Series, 1918. After they won the World Series in 1918, their owner, Harry Frazee, sold their star player, Babe Ruth, to none other than the New York Yankees. I know, it's terrible. And it was to, to fund a Broadway show, I think. So uh, that's how what was called the Curse of the Bambino was born, because Babe Ruth, that was, of course, his nickname, the Bambino. And the Red Sox were said to be cursed with bad luck forever because of this one greedy owner. And the curse of the Bambino ran deep in the Red Sox sports tradition until the 2004 playoffs. And then the Red Sox came back against none other than the New York Yankees to uh, win the ALCS, the American League Championship Series. And you began to hear this phrase said all over the place. Well, at least in my side of the family reverse the curse reverse the curse you heard people at the World Series chanting this reverse the curse and they did the Red Sox did in 2004 go on to beat the Cardinals and win the World Series finally after all those years well I don't know if that curse the curse of the Bambino was real but the Bible tells us that Christ really did reverse the curse that was placed on Adam and Eve and all of humanity because of their sin. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He set us free from the law of sin and death, so that the broken relationship between men and women that, that God had uh, said would be that the, the woman's desire would be for her husband and that he shall rule over you that was one of the things that Christ came to heal that's life in the kingdom of God we say life in the kingdom of God that, that it's it's already but not yet you know what I mean like the kingdom has come but not yet in its fullness. And though we see through a glass darkly, as Paul wrote, we know that that's the reality. That Christ is making new in us. Jesus is making possible in us. He's making all things new. And we get to be a part of that. We get to live into that. God's intention is that we live that out together in community. And that's the third act of this drama. Christian community. God's intention is that we live out this new life in Christ together in Christian community. We see how Jesus started this ball rolling already in his ministry. We see how he treated women in a way that was really revolutionary for his time. Unlike the other rabbis of his day, Jesus had disciples who were women who traveled around with him. That was unheard of for a rabbi of his day. They would only have allowed men to follow them and learn from them. In fact, in Jewish tradition, it was considered scandalous to let a woman learn. But Jesus welcomed women to sit at his feet and learn. He welcomed them to be his disciples. It says in Luke 8 that there were a group of women, women disciples who traveled with him and even supported him financially. That's a helpful fact to remember. When you hear someone say that the Bible says that the man needs to be the provider and the breadwinner, even Jesus was supported by some of the women in his circle. And Paul was financially supported by women, for example, the businesswoman Lydia. So Jesus was revolutionary in how he treated women. He counted Mary and Martha, among his closest friends, and not just friends, but he had deep theological discussions with them about the meaning of the resurrection and what it meant that he was the Messiah. And he even told them at one point when Mary was sitting at his feet like the rest of the disciples and learning, and Martha was doing typical woman's work, cooking and preparing a meal, he said to Martha, Mary has chosen what is better. It's more important that she learns as a disciple. Jesus had a deep theological discussion with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, about what it meant that he was the Messiah. He even gave the news of his resurrection, first of all, to a woman, Mary Magdalene, to go and tell the disciples. They didn't believe her, by the way, because they said, it's just idle women's talk. But that's the one that Jesus gave to go and share the good news that he was alive. That's why the early church called Mary Magdalene an apostle to the apostles. So Jesus kind of set the stage, and then we have Pentecost, the birthday of the church when the Holy Spirit arrived. And the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts tells us, came on men and women alike. And it's interesting, the Bible takes pains to point out that women received the Holy Spirit as well as the men. It says in Acts 2 that in the last days, God said, this is referring to what's happening on Pentecost, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. See how that reverses the curse? It puts men and women back on equal spiritual footing. You know, there's lists uh, in several places in the New Testament of spiritual gifts that God gives. Never once in all those lists does it say that some of these gifts are for men and some are for women. In fact, it just says God gives them to whomever God wants One one verse that has really meant a lot to me in my spiritual journey has been uh, 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. His divine power has given me everything I need for life and godliness. Jesus is enough. And his power in my life, in your life, in anyone's life, is enough. That is good news. I think that's partly what those words we sang earlier mean, that he is a chain breaker. He sets us free to believe that he is enough, all that we need. So when we try to insert more layers between us and God, that we need in order to relate to God. It always gets us in trouble. And we human beings do this in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's that we need the work of a pastor or a priest between us and Jesus. Or we need certain rituals or certain words or prayers or even objects Sometimes the church has gotten off track here by saying that women need a man to be between us and Jesus. But that's not what scripture teaches. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. He's given us all we need for life and godliness. Aaron Ortega puts it this way, God does not place one adult family member over another giving men's viewpoints and convictions precedent over women's. Neither does God ask women to ignore their own gifts for spiritual discernment for the sake of maintaining the privilege of men. She goes on to say, Each believer is told to stand on God's will and wait for his word. This command is never qualified as not applying to women. That's the priesthood of all believers. That's the good news that the Bible makes clear. And and God's plan for us is to live that out in community. And we see that happening in the New Testament. We see that women were prophets. Acts tells us about Philip's four daughters who prophesied. We read about Priscilla and her husband Aquila. Paul commends them as being teachers Of theology. They taught Apollos theology, and Paul says they were his fellow workers in the gospel and even lists Priscilla's name first often. Paul addresses many women by name in his letters. He calls Euodia and Syntyche women who contended at my side for the gospel. He mentions Phoebe, a deacon. He mentions Chloe, a leader in the church in Corinth. He mentions Aphia, Nympha, Lydia, Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, that's a mouthful, uh, all as women who are leaders in the church. He even mentions an apostle named Junia and calls her outstanding among the apostles. So this is the context in which those hard passages need to be interpreted. When we're clear on the Bible's larger message, then we can get clear on these individual verses. And certainly they take some careful thought and understanding. And if we had another hour or so, we could go into pulling some of those apart on on a, a more specific basis. Rachel Held Evans says, it's hard to argue that Paul's statements in those hard passages, are meant to be universally applied when so many women for, from Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, are honored by God and praised by their community for teaching and exercising leadership. I think one of the core verses that this all comes down to is Galatians three, twenty-six through 28. I read that earlier. So in Christ Jesus... You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. That is good news. For Paul himself, who was a devout Jew, this message must have been revolutionary. In his Jewish morning prayers, which he likely prayed daily, Paul would have grown up thanking God that, you, that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And yet, the power of Jesus led him to the truth that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. As a Christian, Paul says the very opposite because he believes with all his heart That Jesus Christ has removed the dividing walls. That he is the chain breaker. Paul teaches us, and the Bible really as a whole teaches us, that if we're asking who in the Christian community gets to be in charge, really, we're asking the wrong question. (laughs) Jesus' disciples came to him and asked him that question. Hey, Jesus, which one of us will get to be in charge when you receive your glory? And Jesus answered this way. He said that, You know the rulers in this world lord it over people, and the officials flaunt their authority over those under them, but among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we're asking who gets to be in charge, we're asking the wrong question. Leadership, Jesus says, means to become a servant. Power comes When I tie a towel around my waist and wash my neighbor's feet. It comes when I give my enemy my coat. It comes when I love my neighbor as myself. Power comes when I let Christ be glorified in my weakness. When I treat others better than myself. That is the kingdom of God. That is God's merciful Design for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for that good news. Jesus, you paid it all, and you are enough. Lord, there may be some here today who need to be set free. Set free from the power of sin and death. Set free from the power of others' unrealistic expectations of them. Set free from all different kinds of pain. Holy Spirit, would you come again afresh and do your work in our lives? Make us into that community of Christ that you envision for us. As that prayer that you taught us says, may your kingdom come. May your will be done here among us so that we look like what it looks like in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.